So uh, please turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3, and I will say that this is the last of our, if you have been keeping track, our six weeks in chapter 3 of Genesis, and I am loath to leave it behind. Um, And I hope what you see here in Genesis 3 is an incredible story of grace, of compassion, of love. It tells us when we, because this world is difficult. Life is difficult. There's so many struggles, there's so much pain in this world. And Genesis 3 tells us it was not meant to be this way. And Genesis, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and Genesis 3 also tells us that it will not always be this way. And Genesis 3 tells us that God has not abandoned us. And so it's a story of tragedy, but it's also a story of triumph. It's a story of compassion. It's a story of love. It's a promise of hope, a sure hope. And so this is our last week in the third chapter of Genesis. And you'll see that as we continue through Genesis, we're going to go on at probably an accelerating rate. But here at the beginning of the Bible, I hope you see so many ideas, themes that will be developed throughout Scripture of God's love, His compassion for us, the kind of life He calls us to live. And here, as we come to the end of chapter 3, we see also that there is a purpose for us. There is a very real and important essential and crucial part that we play in this story of salvation. And so as we come to when the Lord God has met Adam and Eve at the garden, and as he addresses the serpent, he pronounces judgment upon the serpent. And he also pronounces victory for Adam and Eve. And I want us to notice two things this morning about this victory that God declares that Adam and Eve and he will have over the serpent. First is that God pronounces this victory at the very moment that Adam and Eve have enabled Satan to strike a blow against God. The great war that we saw last week is not any of these wars that we fight here upon this earth, not the great war or the current conflicts that we face, but the war that has been ongoing that we read about in Revelation chapter 12 between God and the serpent. And what God does in pronouncing this victory over the serpent is that he has absorbed that hurt, that betrayal, the sin that we committed against him, and turned in compassion and grace and mercy to Adam and Eve and declared to them, you will defeat the serpent that has defeated you. The second thing is that this victory that God pronounces is a very curious kind of victory. And it is because If there was simply a contest between God and Satan, God would very easily win that contest. 
because God could very easily destroy Satan. It is not a battle between equals, but a battle between an infinite, all-powerful God against a finite creature. But that victory is one which also exalts Adam and Eve and promises us that we will triumph over the one who seems to be more powerful than us, who has greater knowledge than we have. And that in that triumph, there's also our restoration to the place that he had given to us. And so what we had lost in the fall will more than be restored to us. In other words, it's not simply God who comes and bails out these helpless little sinners who have turned against him. It's God coming and making us strong so that we overcome Satan. It's a partnership, it's a friendship, it's a union, it's a joining together of God and the man. And one of the things that Irene and I were talking about this week and that she kind of pointed out to me because she said, you said this in the sermon. And I thought, oh, I didn't make much of it, but she said, God doesn't use us. Now, it's not wrong in one sense in that we are instruments of God in terms of much of what he accomplishes for us. But would we say, for example, I'm going to use my spouse to accomplish a specific purpose. I'm going to use her to get dinner ready. <laughs> if, if I said it like that, it would, it would make it seem like she's simply a tool. And what we see here in what God declares to Adam and Eve is that they are far more than that. They are his precious children. They are his partners. They are his treasured. They are his beloved. Uh, this week, I met with an interesting gentleman here at this church. And um, I'm sorry to say that I think he was, there may have been some language gap, but I really had a very strong sense that he was representing a cult. Uh, and he came and initially he, he, he asked to meet me because he said he wanted, he had come to Pittsburgh and he wanted to know more about our church. But when I met him, he didn't ask any questions about our church, and he had a lot to tell me about what it was that we needed to believe in our Christian faith. And he was promoting a particular person, a, a pastor, and his theology. And the theology seemed to have this idea in it. There was prosperity elements in it, but there was also this idea that we needed to stop striving. And that it was God who just does it all. And that when we rely on our own strength, we simply fail. Now there's always these mixtures of truth an error because it is true if we rely simply on our strength apart from God that we will fail but at the same time it is absolutely essential to God's plan of salvation that you and I participate in that work and I want you to hear that again because that is the the, the, the conclusion here in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, you think that, oh, man is such a screw-up. God's going to have to do it. But that is absolutely not true. God does do it, but he does it through us.
And so uh, just to give you some sense of, of where we see this, well, we do see it right here in Genesis chapter 3 because it is the seed of the woman and that has enormous implications in terms of how God is going to defeat the serpent. But you see that theme continued throughout Scripture. And I'll just have to say that there's nothing that really gets me going like when somebody comes and they start teaching bad theology that misleads the church. And if you meet someone who wants to debate on this, I will happily accept that invitation. Uh, look at some passages and, and listen to this. First, uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 26. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Think about that. That is the Apostle Paul writing, and he is saying, I am filling up in my flesh that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What is that idea that there is something lacking in the afflictions of Christ? And it is simply this, that God accomplishes his purpose through us and in partnership with us. And so both in terms of Mary is the culminating uh, or, uh, epitome of this idea because it's in Mary who, in response to the announcement by the angel, that she will bear the child. And she says, let it be to me according to all you have said. It's a submission to God. But it's through the instrument of a human being that salvation comes to earth. But it's not just Mary. It's every one of us. And so Paul is filling up in his flesh. Well, what is it that Paul did? Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He went out. He was sent out by the church. And he proclaimed the gospel. And uh, I'll just say the first year that I served as a pastor, um, I remember partway through the year we started in the book of Acts. And as I was going through the book of Acts, and I was struggling in terms of having to prepare a sermon every Sunday. And Irene will tell you that after a while, every Sunday started to sound the same. I hope that's not the experience that you guys are having. <laughs> but there was this pattern where Paul would go to a city. He would proclaim the gospel. And then he would be whipped, or he'd be stoned, or he'd be imprisoned, or a combination of all these and then he'd go to the next city and rinse and repeat. And I was like, well, I'm preaching the same thing. Got to suffer for Christ. But you see what is happening here. Paul, in bringing the gospel to the nations, filled up in his flesh the afflictions which were lacking in Christ. It is the missionaries that have gone out and proclaimed the gospel to the nations. It's ACF on campus, in an environment where perhaps Christ, the church, Christianity is not popular, that will proclaim the name of Christ and say, we are here, Christians, on campus, and let others know the gospel. When you do that, 
you fill up in your flesh the afflictions which were lacking in Christ because Christ must be made known. And you must be sanctified. You must be brought into that relationship with Christ. And if you remember last week, we talked, what is the battleground in this war between God and Satan? And it's simply in the matter of relationships. And we see that relationships are where all the conflict is taking place. Satan is trying to destroy the relationship between God and man. And God comes to say, not only is that relationship not destroyed, but it is made infinitely secure because God, as we know now, has united himself to man in the person of Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. And so we have a passage like Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Well, isn't it God who has done everything? If so, why is Paul commanding the Philippians? Work out your salvation. I thought salvation is by grace, faith, and not by works. And yet, at the same time, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. And so it is both God and man in union, in partnership together. And why is this so, so, so very important? And it's because we simply have to stop messing around. We have to stop screwing around. In the words of C.S. Lewis, we need to stop mucking about making mud pies when there's a promise of a vacation to the ocean. And so how do we enter this fight? In Genesis chapter 3, God says, you must participate in this fight. And he also tells us how we are to do it. And so here in Genesis 3, we have both a great promise, a great assurance, and also a call to arms. This is something that we too must participate in. And salvation, apart from the work of God's people, is not made complete. And so what is it that you and I will spend our lives on? What is it that we make a priority? What is it that we make as our life goals? What is it that you seek to attain? You who are going to school, what is your dream job? What is the hope that you have for your life? Those of you who are working, what is it that you want your career to accomplish? Those of you who have retired, is it now just, in the words of Piper, picking up seashells on the seashore? Or is there a greater purpose in your life? Now, the things like preparing for a career, seeking after a good education, finding a good life partner, it's not that these are bad things to do. But what you have to see is that they must serve a higher purpose. And that higher purpose is a person. That person is the one who has done everything for us. And in turn, he must be the person for whom we do all things, all your life. 
And, and here's an area where just in my own life, for a long time, there was this dichotomy. There was the service that I did for my church. And so on Sundays and then oftentimes during the week, there are many different times that I serve my church in various different ways. But then I thought, the rest of my life is mine. And that was a very wrong understanding of what God called me to in the Christian life. Our entire lives are to be wrapped up in him. We labor in the cause of Christ. We celebrate, rejoice, and fellowship in the name of Christ. We suffer in the name of Christ. And we delight ourselves and enjoy the gifts of God to glorify his name. Think about what makes life worthwhile. Suppose I had the kind of life where everything I did was for me. You know, I've got my bucket list, I've got my dreams and hopes, and I spend my life trying to become this person who is wealthy, comfortable, secure, prestigious, and everything in my life is about me. What kind of life would that be? In the end, that kind of life I hope you can see it would be enormously unfulfilling. We have countless examples of people who have attained so many things. I mean, one of the things that you can see is a lot of the celebrities that we have in our culture, in our day, in our age. Oh, they're so happy, right? Because, I mean, they've made it. And what we find is so many of these people are some of the most unhappy people on earth. And some of it is because one of the things that one sage has said is the worst thing that God could do for someone is to let them accomplish all their dreams and then sit back and laugh when they realize how completely unfulfilling it is and watch as they despair. Now, that would be if God was cruel, which he's not. But I hope you can see that. What if? Think about it, if, if all your earthly dreams were accomplished, and at the end of it, if there's no one to share those dreams with you, no one to enjoy those things alongside you, what fulfillment would there be? I mean, even in a worldly way, we can see this. When I married Irene, life became so much better, simply because now there was somebody who I could share everything in my life with. All the joys, all the sorrows, all the triumphs, all the defeats, and there would be someone there to share those things with. But ultimately, no person can bear the weight of that. If the meaning of my life was centered on Irene, and I looked to her for the full fulfillment of all the things that we were doing. And it was her happiness and her joy that meant everything to me. Well, number one, you could see where that would end, right? Because if I outlived her, when she died, where would my world be? It would be gone. But even in the situation where she's still here, uh, the reason we know this is because I just say that I probably did a good bit of this early on in our marriage. And that put such weight upon her because she could never be unhappy. 
Whenever she was unhappy, her husband would be hovering around her. What's wrong? What's going on? Oh, I just want to sit and think for all. Oh, but you're not smiling. <laughs> and it, it just puts such weight upon her. And a human being can't bear the magnitude or the weight of all those expectations and to support the meaningfulness of all our actions. When England goes to war, what do they say? This is for queen and country, right? You know, they're, they're fighting for their nation. And you can see that the queen there represents something higher because she represents the nation. But suppose it was just her. And, 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 and England goes to war. And all these people are dying just for her. At the end of the day, I don't know, I, if, if I was a queen, I would go insane with the weight of all the magnitude of these lives being given for my sake. And so we see on the one hand, there's this need that we have for fellowship and companionship. Uh, Orson Welles said, we're born alone, we live alone, we die alone. Only through our love and friendship can we create the illusion for the moment that we're not alone. And that's a very kind of despairing sort of quote. But turn that around and think about how that works if there's a different person at the end of that. In fact, if there's God at the end of that. Because with God, that illusion disappears and becomes a reality because he is always there. And he can bear the weight of these sacrifices. Charles August Hauser Jr., a name that probably none of you have ever heard before. He was born in Altoona, Pennsylvania, graduated from the University of Pittsburgh, passed away last week. Uh, he is one of the reasons that I'm here today. He was one of my professors when I went to seminary. And he was a man when I heard his life story, and so he didn't tell this to us, but one of the other professors gave us kind of a history of, of his life. And he had suffered a lot of things, and he had made enormous sacrifices in order to obtain his theological education. And he had lived through, there was a situation, a very abusive situation in the church. But he had held on to his faith, and he continued to serve God. Because God was the one to whom he directed that effort. And God called him home last week. And through his sacrifice given to the Lord, many young men and women, like myself, were trained to serve God. And so there was a goal, there was a purpose to his life. There was a filling up in his flesh of afflictions that, for me, was the work of God that helped sanctify me, help me to know God better, help me to understand the role that I have with respect to God. And so there is a purpose and there is a goal. And when we do them for God in the way that God desires, we then enter into that fight. And so when we look here in Genesis chapter 3 and we see God's pronouncement upon the serpent, and we see that it's in partnership with the woman and the seed of the woman who will accomplish the victory of God 
we see that God, too, calls us to participate in that battle. And so, as we understand that God calls us into this, then the question is, what is this going to look like? And as we come to this passage where he pronounces the consequences of the fall upon the man and the woman, we see ways in which this will work out. Now, we had a uh, question raised in one of our cell groups this week, uh, a very interesting question by a person who decided to uh, remain unknown, but said I could share this question. And he, the question he asked was this, why is it that some people seem to shine with the Holy Spirit? while well, the rest of us really seem to struggle. And he was, he was just wondering, why am I not being sanctified more quickly? Why is it like we can desire to, to, to walk with the Lord and uh, to live our lives glorifying God, and yet it just doesn't seem to happen? Well, that is actually what we've been talking about in terms of what is the battle of the Christian life. You see, the reason why we struggle in living the Christian life is because we struggle in living the Christian life. Does that seem like a circular answer? And simply this, our desires are at war with one another. When I become a Christian, there is a new principle active in my life, which was not there before. Romans chapter 3 tells us, how many people are there that, that seek God? How many people would serve God? There is no one who seeks God. No, not one. Romans chapter 3, quoting Isaiah. And yet, when you receive Jesus Christ, what happens? There's something new that has come into your life. There is a desire to honor and glorify God. And yet, that desire now is in conflict with all the worldly desires that you still have. And so what happens with Christians? When, when you become a Christian, all of a sudden, you just stop sinning, right? And obviously, that's not the case. And as Christians, all of us continue to desperately struggle with sin and be defeated over and over and over again. And that is because that is the war that we're fighting. If I did stop sinning, if I live my life wholly and completely for God, then I would be completely sanctified. There would be nothing left for me to do. The war would be won, at least with respect to my life. Until we are wholly sanctified, there are these, um, what one pastor has called these idols of our heart that we continue to struggle with. And so, one of the realities is this. When you become a Christian, God is calling you into partnership with him. And the way he is calling you into partnership with him, one aspect of it is what we just talked about in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. And so for every one of us, that is the battle. That is the struggle to be sanctified in our hearts because it's the relationship. It's the relationship with God that is the battleground. And when that war is won and that relationship is fully restored, you are also fully sanctified. But in terms of that question, there's another aspect to it is 
So when we think about it, if, if I'm going to continually be defeated, what am I looking for? I'm looking for progress. Where was I 10 years ago? Where was I five years ago? Where was I last year? And where will I be tomorrow? When I look at my life and I look at my relationship with God, what's happening? Is there a progression that is going on in my relationship with God? And one of the things that I'm very thankful for as I stand here today is that when I look back at my life and I see today, I can be very discouraged. And I hope some of you are, all of you actually, are discouraged from time to time. Because, I think I've given this analogy before, corpses don't move. Corpses don't act. And apart from Jesus Christ, every one of us is dead. But a live man can be defeated. A live man can struggle. A live man can fail. And a live man can repent and try to do better. Because what God has done in us when we have received his son, Jesus Christ, and his Holy Spirit has come with him, within us is he's enlightened us. We've come back to life. We're alive again. And so now we're, we're kicking. But are we going to stumble? Are we going to fall? Certainly. But what we're looking at and what we're looking for is where is my relationship with God going? Is there progression going on? And so how do we evaluate these questions? Where am I? And where am I going? And how does this fight look like? And we do get into what I would say God shows us where some of the essential aspects of this battle are going to be. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, he says this to the woman. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for or contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. What's going on there? Well, pain. If you look at the consequences here to the woman in childbirth, but then you look in the next section to the consequences to the man. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The commonality between the man and the woman is simply this. Pain. Pain tells us things are not the way they should be. Pain is a reminder that God is working in us. And pain makes it clear the progress of our sanctification. Because pain brings us to a decision, and particularly in how we respond to the relationships that God has placed before us. And so, in pain, the woman brings forth children. And this is in partnership with her husband, with whom the relationship is also now a struggle. Pain brings us to a decision, because now submission to God will not be easy. Submission to God comes with a price. And I do not believe that it is any accident, that it is here that our culture so challenges us. Because submission in our culture today is kind of a dirty word, right? I mean, when we talk about submitting, I mean, certainly if you talk about wives, submit to your husband. Or even 
Submit yourself to the good of your community. Submit yourself to the laws of the country. And we're, we live in a country, in a culture where rebellion actually is kind of celebrated. Independence, strength, doing what you want to do and not letting others dominate you. Submission is a difficult concept. But pain ensures that that decision to submit comes in the right way and is purposeful. And in particular, it asks the question, will I embrace this pain or will I seek to avoid the pain for my own good? As we said, Mary is kind of the preeminent example. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And here, we see that our natural selves rebel against the order that God has established. On the woman's part, her desire is, and the, the translation here is uh, debatable in terms of for your husband or contrary to your husband. And really the idea there is that this relationship that was supposed to be a partnership, so think of it in these terms, when you're trying to understand what does this passage mean? What had God established? God had established a, a certain relationship between the man and the woman, and the woman had been given to the man to be a partner to him so that they could cooperate and rule over the earth together. But when sin comes, sin distorts that relationship. And so what will that relationship look like? No longer will it be a joyful partnership and willing submission. But now, the woman who was to be a helper to the man has her desire set against the man. And the man will have one desire, the woman will have another desire, and now where there should be harmony, there's conflict. And that relationship is distorted in a way that is particularly painful because that union between the man and the woman is supposed to be the closest relationship that we have. But instead, it now becomes a relationship in which conflict is inevitable. I mean, you know, the, the fairy tale endings that you see at the end of every story where, you know, the man gets together with the woman and they live happily ever after never happens, right? Because there's always conflict. And so what happens here is that the woman no longer seeks to joyfully submit to her husband but she sets her desire and her will against her husband's. And on the husband's part, where it says, he shall rule over you, what was that partnership supposed to look like? And what does submission in the plan of God always look like? Well, submission in the plan of God, man was supposed to submit to God because God desired to bless the man. And so the dominion and the rule that man also was supposed to exercise over the earth was the relationship of blessing. And so in the ideal union between a man and a woman, what does the man do? The man is looking at his wife and he's saying, what has God called her to be? What is his purpose for my wife? What are her gifts? How does she prosper and thrive? What is it that God has made in her that I can help bring to full fruition? And then he asks the question, what do I need to sacrifice in order to bring that reality for my wife to fruition? But instead, now dominion works in a very different way. It becomes an exploitative relationship. I have rule. I'm the authority in this house. 
so I get my way. And instead of being a relationship where the wife joyfully submits to her husband, who in turn is seeking for her good, it becomes a contest of wills, where the stronger seeks to dominate the weaker for their own purposes. And so what does God do? And in Christian marriage, what does that relationship now look like? What God tells us in terms of our salvation and our victory, here's the battleground. Again, it's a relationship. And so in a Christian union between a man and a woman, you have the restoration of that. You again have the man turning to his wife and seeking after her blessing. And you again have the wife looking at her husband and trusting and understanding that he is seeking her good and joyfully submitting to the decisions that he makes with the knowledge that he is after her blessing. But instead, what we have is we have these broken relationships between the man and the woman. And we also see the same broken relationship between man and the ground. The ground, the earth that man was supposed to rule over and have dominion over in order to be a caretaker, a representative of God to all creation. But now that relationship is broken and the ground is cursed because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And instead of the fruit of the soil, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There is a very strong disjunction going on here, and I'm very indebted to my wife uh, for how I'm able to kind of explain this to you. There's a very interesting word here, and there's, a, there's an image that gets developed through Scripture. And so um, many of you know that uh, Hannah and my wife, Irene, have written a book together that's going to be soon published called Taste and See. And uh, so one of the things that she did as she was doing research for this book was she looked up these occurrences of the word bread. And how is bread used throughout Scripture? And so here is the first instance. And so by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And here's something that she found a consistent pattern of that I never would have guessed until she brought it up. Bread always comes to us in the scripture with this idea of both mercy and judgment. Mercy and judgment. And so the first instance we see here is in the context of judgment. As human beings, we need sustenance. We need bread. And so it is the mercy of God that although that relationship is broken, the earth still does provide sustenance. But it only provides sustenance now in terms of the sweat of his brow and in pain. What's the next time we see this idea of bread come up? Well, if you remember, there was this particular incidence between a man named Joseph and his brothers. And the brothers were let's just put it, somewhat unhappy with Joseph. And so because of their unhappiness, they threw him in a pit. They were going to leave him to die. But instead, in mercy, they sold him to slavers. And they, he was carried off to Egypt. And many of you will know the story of what happened with Joseph in Egypt, that he 
was sold as a slave and then was falsely accused of rape and then he was thrown into prison and languished there for many, many years. But then God raised him up. And he was raised up to serve a particular purpose because there was a problem that was going to happen. And that problem was a lack of bread. And that problem came to Jacob and his sons. And Jacob told his sons, I've heard that there is bread in Egypt. And he sent his sons off to get it. And it's very interesting now because you see what's happening. Because what is it that now bread here represents for, for the sons of Jacob? They need to go and they need something. They need mercy. They need mercy in particular from Joseph, the younger brother, that they'd thrown into prison. And in coming to sort out this problem of bread, the brothers are going to have to face judgment, and in particular, the judgment of Joseph. Because they will come before Joseph, and Joseph will do what? He will test them. Because he wants to see what kind of men that they have become. And what he, has, what he sees, and, and the reason, and we'll come to that in Genesis maybe in a few years, but <laughs> we'll see that God is working in the family of Jacob throughout this time. And what Joseph sees are different kind of brothers. Because there's another son of Rachel. And there's a care for the father now that these brothers have that they did not have many years ago. And when they come for bread, they also face judgment. But what we also see in the lives of these brothers is redemption. They have become, God has brought them to become different kind of men. And then many years later, again, we would see this image again of bread and judgment. Because God, in that time of famine, brought the people to Egypt where they settled. But then when a later Pharaoh rose, they became enslaved. And having been enslaved, they now needed deliverance. And God would send them the deliverer, Moses, who would lead them on in Exodus. And in the Exodus, they were traveling, and God would provide them food. But it was food provided to them in a particular way. Because they would have to engage in this exodus. They would have to walk with the Lord. They would have to depend upon him and learn to trust him again. And the people grumbled. Right? In Egypt, we used to have meat to eat. Never mind being killed and enslaved and having to work for the Egyptians, make bricks without straw. But we had meat to eat. <laughs> but manna came. And it again, in the response of the people to this bread, it was both mercy, but it was also judgment upon them. How would they respond to God's provision for them? And so, how do we respond today to God's provision? Because how is the bread gotten? And the bread serves as a motif or an idea that brings a number of different ideas together. Because bread represents sustenance to us. But how we get it is through labor. And labor is also part of that judgment. And, and so one of the questions that Genesis 3 asks us is how do we respond to this provision of bread? Because it now comes in a difficult way. And so does the pain 
does a labor, does a submission to the law come with grumbling? Do we seek to avoid it? Why do we do it? And so do we do it simply for ourselves in isolation again? Or are we being transformed so our labor, our receiving of God's grace through bread, our labor for the bread, how is that now given? Is it something where it again becomes something that we do for the community? Is it something where the relationships that God has ordained and established are built up and we receive and, and seek to build those relationships or is it continually and again in isolation where we are self-seeking in our labor, where we grumble against the pain and the toil or do we sub turn and submit to God? And so Genesis chapter 3 tells us this. It tells us that victory is assured but it also tells us that your cooperation my cooperation, our submission to God is absolutely essential in this process of salvation. Salvation is accomplished by God, 100%, for sure, certain. And it is also provided 100% by God through His people. Your participation in salvation and in the work of God is absolutely essential. So I want to close with this and with the closing of Genesis chapter 3, looking at verse 22, where God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What God has promised is that way is again open. Because there's another tree also that we're going to see uh, come up in the course of redemptive history. And there's a way back. But that way back is in submission to the relationship that God has established with him and with one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all, with all your strength. And the second commandment is like it. And so, in knowing good and evil, what we saw in previous weeks is that knowledge of good and evil is not the knowledge of what is right and what is wrong, because man already had that. But it was in that decision that I will determine for myself what is right and what is wrong. And so in our lives, is there going to be a reversal of that? This is the battleground. Will we submit to God? Will we submit to one another? Will we seek to live our lives in the relationships that God has established? When it comes to the test of our toil, our labor, for whom will we labor and how will we labor? And it is those things, the painful, nitty-gritty, day-to-day struggle of human life that the true battle, the battle of the sanctification of our hearts will either be won or lost. Let's win that battle. Let's close in prayer.
Father God, we thank you for the great promise you've made that we, in partnership with you, are sure to win the battle if we will only receive the grace and mercy that you offer. But receiving grace and mercy is not simply sitting back and saying, I'm saved, now I can do whatever I want. Because that attitude is the attitude that leads us to hell in the first place. But help us instead submit ourselves to you in the way that you have desired, in the way that you planned, in the way that you ordained. Help us live our lives to your glory, making each decision day by day in submission to you, in the painful small decisions of life, in the big decisions of career, marriage, job, all these things. Help us live them in accordance with your will and according to all that you have given us. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Could we all please stand for worship and response? Um, this song is a new song, but it's very simple. Um, it is a prayer uh, for what Pastor Hans was speaking about today, that we are unable to be the ones to... Um, bring ourselves before Christ and we are asking him and we are at his mercy to awaken us we are dead in our sins um, and we will close our time of worship to, with a reminder of who that God is
this morning with uh, God's challenge to the people of Israel when he had brought them out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 4 and following, it reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And my prayer for this church and God's challenge to us, will we walk in God's law, receive his blessings with delight, or will we be a people who will continue to grumble against him? Our challenge to you this morning, walk glorifying the name of God, living your lives for his purpose. Go in peace. You can be seated. We're going to continue um, after a short break. If you're online, please stay with us. Uh, we'll stay here, but uh, come back at 1130. But I think uh, we could 